When the truth is found to be lies And all of the joy within you dies What a stupid thing to say Oh, what a stupid thing to say Oh, what a stupid thing to say Oh, what a stupid thing to say Hi all, Nate here. Hope you enjoyed the extended musical intro from Jonas Keen. He and Gabe Slon are a wonderful band called Free Lunch in America that you can check out now on Spotify. And they, along with Noah Slon, Ben Wilson, and Ian Dillingham, are the members of the tribe I've assembled for this all-star episode of What a Stupid Thing to Say. We're discussing one of our favorite Jewish films, the 2009 Coen Brothers classic, A Serious Man. Standard disclaimer, watch the movie first, then come here and join us for what I think will be a fun ride as we discuss sebaceous cysts and haftarah portions. Protagonist Larry Gopnik gets a foreboding call from his doctor, and his jazz cabbage addict son Danny can only watch as a tornado bears down in his Hebrew school. We join the conversation in media res as I ask the question of the hour. What exactly happens at the end of A Serious Man? Jewish people really love going to the doctor, huh? <laughs> you ever notice that? You know, I would voice I'm excited for my first doctor, but I only know Jews. I think what happened is the worst you know he gets the call from his doctor uh the x-rays can only show something bad like the light bulb broke inside his ass or he's got like cancer or you know something in between those two uh and fagel and danny and the rest of that cohort get swept up by a tornado yeah i think it's a literal adaptation of the story of job and we're in the middle where God is taking Job's kids. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I'll back this up a so little later. So you think later. there's a, a serious man too, two man too serious, where <laughs> like the, the rest of it goes through? <laughs> so pe- what people don't realize about the story of Job, may I read from Job for a second? Please yes, read from please. Job. So, yeah, at the, so after God takes all of Job's you know wife and kids and family and gives him boils, um... He gives him like back a family, a new family. So, so the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had fourteen thousand sheep, six thousand camels, a thousand yokes of oxen, and a thousand she asses. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and his daughters were known as the finest among the nations. Yo, you do not want to know what I would do with a thousand she asses. <laughs> <laughs> It would it would be lethal. I'm just, but as you were, Jonah. Um, anyways, so yeah, that's the, that's the real end of Job. No one talks about it. It's kind of fucked up to give him a whole new family because you know people family, aren't yeah. just indispensable. But my point is, um, I think the whole serious man is a direct adaptation of the story of Job. I have more evidence for this later, but um, they share a lot of similarities, and throughout it, I think it shows that life has a randomness, and that you know. Even though uh, Larry is trying to be a faithful man, trying to be a rational man, trying to be a serious man, life uh-huh. throws all these, all these curveballs at him and, and all this randomness. And, and kids dying is really a, a cruel kind of random act. Mm. And I think it's a fitting end to the film. I don't think that anything happens at the end. Um, I think that maybe there's a tornado and maybe for a moment it's you know temporarily inconvenient. Maybe he goes in and gets an x-ray and, you know, something is wrong with his health or something. But it's not, you know, catastrophic. I, I, I think that, you know, the sort of theme of the movie is really that life goes on and that, uh, you know, these things that happen to us in our lives, we build them up and they begin to seem like they have all this power. And then you kind of look back and you're like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember that. You know, like in the beginning of the movie, he's, you know, given this dilemma of his wife is ostensibly cheating on him with Cy Abelman. And he's now, Cy Abelman has been sort of wedged into his life and he's forced to connect with this guy that he doesn't really like. And suddenly he's living in a motel and that feels like the biggest problem in his life, you know. And then, you know, the all these other things happen in the movie and there's the problem with the student and then the tornado happens, and it's like, God, how could anything be huger than this? Um, but I think the thing about life and about the movie is that uh, you just kind of get through it. Okay, so 
I got into a little bit of a tiff last night with with my roommate because I told him I was going on this esteemed podcast the next day to discuss the ending of a serious man. He's like, well, what do you think happened? I'm like, well, obviously a tornado happened. He's like, yeah, but like, and then what? I'm like, what do you mean? And then what? There was a tornado and then the movie ended. And he started going on about, oh, it's like, means like the contradictions of being an american jew and this guy whose life was turned upside down this signifies that finally his life has just erupted into absolute chaos counterpoint though what could be worse for your life than a tornado and also cancer so after i rewatched the movie since i've been blessed with this new vision of interpreting movies non-literally which <laughs> i'm not sure if i've taken to it or not yet there, there's an overarching message that we see throughout the movie and m characters speak the same line basically to each other multiple times and it was only with the aid of certain medication and also a new perspective that i was able to understand well how many times is it repeated in the movie except the mystery you know mm -hmm. except the mystery heisenberg's uncertainty principle he says he says to his student clive right um what did he say? He's like, Schrodinger's cat, that, that's all just a story. It's, it doesn't mean anything. The math is where it happens. Like, the story doesn't mean anything. Even I don't understand this story. How many rabbis does he go to to ask what happens? What's his answer? What happens to the goy? Who cares? You know? Um, so how many times have the Coen brothers told us just accept the mystery? We see that in the film Parallels that I'm sure we'll mention here later um, in Barton Fink. Um, so the question becomes then, not what happens at the end, but how do you deal with what happened throughout the film? How can we mm -hmm. learn to live our lives without questioning and looking for a deeper meaning, you know? Um, so it was an interesting commentary on, on a man who's, who finds himself between the American dream and um, the Jewish experience <clears throat> and finds satisfaction from neither. Um, I'm gonna have to agree with uh, Mr. Benno Wilson that none of it matters. Now, part of that is inextricably linked to my take that the entire movie, A Serious Man, is a riff on all horror movies and is, in fact, mm. one of those. And the key thing about all horror movies, they don't mean anything. They're just fun, and you get a little scared, and then you leave. And they're often, annoyingly, tied into Christian shit, but not meaningfully so. They just know that crosses look cool. They never mean anything. You just go, and then someone gets possessed, or there's a haunted thing, or whatever it may be, and that's that. And there's some calamities, and then at the end, sometimes people survive, sometimes they don't, but you leave the theater, and it was just a movie. And I think that there is no great meaning at the end of this movie, because it's just a movie. And I think if you look at other Coen Brothers' work, uh, like in Burn After Reading, at the end, when John Malkovich is talking to the other guy, J.K. Simmons. That is who it was, yeah. When John Malkovich is talking to J.K. Simmons, and then one of them says to the other one, I don't know which one, um, so what did we learn from all this? And the other one says to the one who said that, not a thing. I think he cursed, but I would never. Um, there's no point. It's just a movie. The Coen brothers are just trying to have a good time. I think most of their movies don't have an overwhelming amount of meaning. I think they just like making fun movies, and I feel like they try to show us that every movie they make hey we're just having a good time and then people try to take meaning out of them so i'm going to agree with ben there is no big significance to the tornado frank we're not talking about the dibbick scene yet but when we will believe me <laughs> that didn't mean anything either it's just a chill oh chill fun time in south carolina where i am there was supposed to be a tornado yesterday i was told tuesday there would be a tornado a twister, one could say, anti-M, that uh, was rival, you know, it was the sort of thing where it's like, they don't usually really get tornadoes in this region of South Carolina, but like, now they do because of climate change, and oh, yeah. uh, the farm bros were rather worried, and then I woke up on Thursday morning, and there was no tornado, and there was a light rainstorm. Now... I've often been on record saying that uh, the, I idolize the Coen brothers, but I would never hug them because they're creepy. 
<laughs> you see, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. You see, last night in preparation for this convo, I was leafing through the Serious Man screenplay, which I recommend all of you read. There's some fun bits. First of all, before it was Marshak, it was Rabbi Minda. What a hmm. good change. Mar the <laughs> syllabization of Marshak is so important. Over the course of the movie, uh, Larry does this, says the sentence, I haven't done anything, and variations on it, hmm. ten times. And he says the question, what's going on, twelve times. So obviously there is this question of, you know, the fact that everything is meaningless and you know, human endeavor doesn't necessarily to amount to anything and you shouldn't attempt for it to, and there's nothing on the guy's teeth, uh, you know, who cares? But then at the end, there's cancer and the tornado. And so I think about my favorite uh, part of the book of Job, uh, which is uh, when God finally speaks to Job, and it's one of the few direct jokes in uh, the Hebrew Bible. Which is, uh, you know, Job has been complaining this whole time, and God says, quote, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. End quote. So, like, God is, like being, God is like being sarcastic. And it's like, oh, okay, you know, like, why I did ever, like, why the, why the universe exists. You just tell me. But this is the vengeful God of the Hebrew Bible, you know, fire and brimstone stuff. So my point is, the impossible annoying nothingness of human endeavor that the Coen brothers are pointing out, I don't think it amounts to no meaning. I think that it amounts to suffering that we have to try to combat. Uh, and at the end, it shows us that in the largest possible uh, capacity, which is why, in my opinion, at the end of the movie, there's this tornado, and we are led to assume that it swells and swells until everyone dies and humanity is over. End of opening statement. Ian, what you got? How are we led yeah, to believe so that? Wait, so is Larry a Fortnite Blondes fan? Did you say Fortnite? Fortnite Blondes. What's going on? I, yeah, dude, I love that Fortnite. Joke. That joke flew over my head. Yeah, that was uh, yeah. It was a Fortnite joke, though. You've played Fortnite. Oh, Tomato Town. Oh, Tomato Stadt. Virgenach of Tomato Stadt. Is it next to the Beanery? different games Ian, carry <laughs> all right, let's get back uh, into all right it, Ian. so i i think i think especially um you know after watching a serious man and of course you know we all had to read a uh, book of job as part of our um part of our time on the shtetl uh and, and all of us did and all of us did and of course um you know from my 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 deep delve into the lore which is of course the first article that comes up when you google search a serious man um it's really easy to read into this movie, and especially the end of this movie, as a Book of Job um, fan fiction. Uh, it's essentially like, you know, you got to play by the rules, and if you're good, then whatever, and if you're bad, then fuck you, uh, and you get a, a tornado and some cancer uh, for your troubles. But, you know, I do actually like having heard what Ben and Noah had to say, um, especially, like, Ben's explanation of it, I, I, having seen other Coen Brothers films, I do like that interpretation because it, it is really easy to say, like, this is just a look into the, you know, Jewish-American experience. You know, you kind of have to uh, balance your faith with, American culture, which kind of by nature is faithless. Um, and you have to balance a culture that uh, promotes reward for hard work um, with a faith that promotes only, you know, punishment for uh, non-strict adherence to a certain set of principles. But I, I feel like the Coen brothers, I feel like, Ben, you might be onto something with the Coen brothers might have just made it in kind of a nothing even matters type way like you do what you want and there might be a tornado and nothing really happens after the tornado life just keeps on going well and i think you know? i wasn't i wasn't trying to say nothing matters i think i was trying to say like there's essentially 
there's almost nothing which is uh which we are not able to overcome and i think that that is a really strong theme in a lot of works that are kind of about judaism you know like to harken back to maybe the other most jewish movie of all time uh fiddler on the roof you know at the end they're driven out of anatevka and uh they're going to america and it's you know tragic they're leaving their home they don't know when they're going to see each other again and one of the villagers i can't remember if it's a named character or not um you know says uh we're always leaving places and then another one says uh, maybe that's why we always wear our hats and i feel like that's what i was really trying to say is not necessarily this nihilistic idea of like it doesn't matter you know what happens at the end but that no matter what happens at the end like life does keep going and you know perhaps you lose people perhaps it becomes less comfortable you have to modify your uh you know uh, techniques at survival but you know life keeps going and um i i thought it was interesting to sort of view as a parallel film because you know this week in preparation for this podcast we also watched man who wasn't there and barton fink and the, i feel like the main difference between barton fink and serious man as compared to man who wasn't there is that man who wasn't there is about um a gentile sort of experiencing this grand existential question of does anything matter and the way that you know sort of a non-jew faces that question is with this kind of uh stoicism as opposed to panic um which i think is i don't know it's strange the way that they sort of made movies that were very about very similar things but you know um that dichotomy between the two on like the basis of faith is so apparent yeah but can you imagine if richard kind had played the lead in man who wasn't there would have been fantastic <laughs> i would have oh, loved that Ow. i do <laughs> you're my wife film. of course doris you're two-timing me <laughs> i need ten thousand dollars well said. it's gonna be the next big thing dry cleaning <laughs> it's like at the end of man who wasn't there he walks out of the prison you know and um sees the spaceship up in the sky and then just goes back into his cell if that had been a jewish guy walking out of his cell and seeing the spaceship in the su- in the sky he would have been like what the fuck is that you know like um <laughs> there's sort of this weird like stoicism that uh goyim are able to face the void with it's true no well said ben um yeah Thank i you. think uh there's uh something uh to be said for like how like they sort of like iterate on how people deal with um the fact that there are no answers i think that um it's funny you mentioned fiddler because like maybe the most fiddler-esque character in serious man is um and i only know her name because i read the screenplay yesterday but larry's friend mimi who's like the very like matronly jewish mom who, like he hangs with at the beach when richard kind is like uh, if they bottle this air they'd make a million dollars and like she's like the <laughs> is that one... the only time we see her by the way yeah that's that's the only time we see her and she's like we're jews we're we jews, have this Larry. well of tradition to turn on <laughs> the defense is wrong um and um <laughs> i just it's funny how like it's it seems like the, to me it seems like she's so out of place like that like fiddler-esque um you know like Jew- standard jewish dogma like does nothing to help larry we're brought right back in by uh, richard kind's just naked chest oh, oh my god beautiful body yeah of course he, he yeah. worked out he worked out for that role yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was a real christian bale maneuver um the book of job is known as one of the only biblical stories that is 100% undeniably, agreeably, um, non-literal Lit. and didn't no. actually happen. It's one of the few biblical stories that is taken as a 100% fable and allegory. That's The man named Job never actually existed. Um, so do with that what you may. Um, perhaps apply it to the whole story and understand that all of it is fable, maybe. I don't know. Um, but something else that I noticed that doesn't really have to do with the ending perhaps but as much as it does the characters is this we have to when you when you remember what time and place this story takes place in right 50s or 60s america does anyone have an exact date 
Um. Well, the point is, it's the the so the shuttle scene at the beginning, which I'm sure we'll get to in a little bit, right? And then you jump straight to '67 America, and Larry is just completely left in the dust by this Jewish counseling that he receives. It does next to nothing for him. Um, I don't know. It just raises questions of the use, not necessarily the use, but the ways that Jewish tradition actually fits into modern American society, and where the man that wasn't there was about allegedly the modern, like the birth of the modern man, and that was more closely post World War II. This is also in the shadows of World War II, basically. So someone like Marshak, mm-hmm. I would be. I mean, I'm assuming he came over during the war and during the Holocaust. Um, I'm just painting his backstory. Um, and he's giving out advice that was built for the shtetl. It was built for a different kind of community, a community that was very strongly connected with each other, um, where things happened slowly. There wasn't that much connection with the outside world, right? And he's giving out this very, very, I don't know, wise, sage advice, mostly quiet. Um, you know, he spends his time thinking. In America, you don't have time to think. You just got to do stuff. Thinking doesn't pay the bills, right? So Larry's facing all these crises of america really right waiting for tenure his wife is you know canoodling with cy abelman um and there's an absolute loss of um what's the word there the the, but the jewish tradition that was built for the shtetl he finds doing nothing for him so it was it was interesting to see that incompatibility between two different times slash two different places um kind of the out of placeness of it all um it doesn't have to do with the ending necessarily it's just it's just a fucking tornado i guess um <laughs> that's it F- fagel dude <laughs> fagel's a fucker the throughout the movie marshak gives only one substantive piece of advice which is be a good boy and i'd good say advice. that's uh that's pretty uh it's pretty solid uh parallel solid with stuff. you know a sort of theodore roosevelt like Goody, good boy, and we'll go yeah. and shoot the bear in the woods and uh, put on your knickers. Jumping off of what Gabe was saying about, you know, Larry being this out-of-place figure, I feel like a lot of the things that they do filmically and aesthetically, and even the casting of Michael Stuhlbarg is so genius in that regard. You would expect, you know, this is a character that you could see being played, you know, if this movie had been made in the 70s or 80s, by Woody Allen. Or you could see this character being played, you know, by, like, Billy Crystal. Or, you know, like, a big-name Jewish comedian or actor um, that, you know, can headline and you could put that name above the title. But Michael Stuhlbarg is, like, a pretty not-super-well-known character actor. You know, this is probably, like, his biggest... The closest thing he's had to, like, a lead role. And that informs the character in this way that he sort of looks invisible and unassuming you know because you don't look at him and say oh that's like a big actor i know he feels like a real guy and they do this in a lot of other ways too like i was reading an an interview with the costume designer of this movie and obviously it takes place in 1967 you know it's sort of just before the hippie movement which we kind of see most directly with like uh you know mrs samsky and sort of her aesthetic and, you know, some of the other clothes and the music in the movie. Um, you could just say weed, to, It's okay. Yeah, <laughs> speak to that, you know, kind of coming mm-hmm. in. But Larry is still dressed like it's the 50s. And, you know, he looks incredibly displaced. Uh, I like his idea about the uh, uh, the use of, like, um, like Fable in the uh, movie. Not Fagel, of course. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, Fable. Because um, that, that initial the book scene, um, and if I could just, like, We've been alluding to it. I'm just going to real quick give a rundown. Essentially, two, uh, a Jewish couple in a shtetl. One helps uh, who he believes to be uh, an old, well-known rabbi. Played um, by Fivish Finkel. Played by that guy, yeah. <laughs> and uh, his wife is like, ah, he died. Uh, and my friend's aunt or whatever, some shit like that, uh, was there. And he, uh, they never buried his body. And he's a Dybbuk. You saved a Dybbuk. And essentially what happens is uh, this rabbi comes into the home. The husband's like, oh, I'm sorry. My wife has it in her head that you're a Dybbuk. The wife's like, you're definitely a Dybbuk. And he's like, I'm not a Dybbuk. Whatever. Like, this is silly. And she ends up stabbing him 
over her belief that he is a Dybbuk. Um, and it's almost seen as mo- like kind of a like a comedic story. Like the way we see it, it doesn't seem like a great tragedy that he's stabbed. So that could be kind of seen as like like I when I first saw that scene, I thought of that as like kind of like a fable or a cautionary tale leading into um, a serious man the entire movie. Yeah. Because not only is like the idea of a Dybbuk, even at that time, seems a little far-fetched to the husband. Like, of course there's not a Dybbuk. He wouldn't be a Dybbuk. He's a real guy. I see him right here. Um, but, like, the, to a certain extent, it, it almost seems like even at that point, the, like, Jewish mysticism and the, like, Jewish culture is, like, a, a relic of a, a previous time. Like, the husband doesn't believe he's a Dybbuk. He doesn't think there's any way he could be a Dybbuk because that wouldn't happen at that time, even though they, too, are in the shtetl when a lot of this culture was, In like, the really... shtetl. Exactly. <laughs> in the shtetl. Um, as I'm sure some of you know, the Coen brothers originally um, sought to get a scene from the Talmud, uh, from the Midrash, to fill out the, the opening of the movie. But they instead created their own kind of Jewish fable, um, and I think it's quite, quite similar to some of the stories in the Talmud, um, in this kind of dark perversity. Um, but I really, I don't know. I really like the opening scene. I think it sets the tone for the movie. About, I think it sets the tone for the movie in the sense of you can't really tell what's real. You can't really tell if this man's a dibbic or not. It's left pretty ambiguous. But also has a quite Jewish bent. I mean, in Judaism, there's no um, there's no clear answers. You know, a lot of things are left up to mystery, left up to the um, kind of the unknowable. I think the biggest examples of, of that kind of clash between Jewish faith and suburban American culture is the scenes with his neighbor. I think his name is Brent. My, yeah, something like that. Right? Yeah, dude, that but, guy you was know. so wavy. <laughs> it's funny. It's fun and funny to see like an offensive caricature of a gentile in a movie. <laughs> oh yeah, you never see him. <laughs> yeah, maybe in Caddyshack. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so, I mean those scenes. You know, Larry's quite a. Uh, you know, he's, he could be a bit more assertive, um, to Brent. And his, his you know Jewishness, the the kind of intellectual. Um, philosophical bent of conversation that may have helped in the shtetl or in like the Vienna circle is of no use in suburban 60s America to try to get part of his lawn back. It actually just makes him look like a pussy. It doesn't make him look like a pussy. Like Sometimes pussy. I feel like that as well. Yeah. I, I'm not exactly a... For those of you that know me, I'm a bit, um... <laughs> I'm a bit, uh, vertically challenged. <laughs> You're not sure. Yeah, no, we all. Well, to quote, uh... You know, the student Clive's father, uh, Culture Clash. It's true. Culture Um, Clash. There were were like three scenes that made me actually LOL, which means laugh out loud. (laughs) The first one was when, um, the what's when Danny is sitting in, um, the Hebrew school principal's office, he's like, Ivrit, and then the fucking secretary (laughs) comes in, (laughs) waddles in, it's (laughs) 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 (laugh
Yeah. And it's just like, Nochner, like, you can never tell as, I don't know, I, I speaking as a guy who knows a lot of rabbis, and a lot of whom I love dearly, Nochner embodies right, bragging. this sort of, like... <laughs> Alright, settle down, settle down. Nochner embodies this sort of, like, you can... He, he's got saying all the right stuff, but you can never tell if he is, like, really a wise sage, or what, um... Uh, what Mel Brooks would call a bullshit artist. Like, uh, or is it all, like, an artifice? When he says stuff like, um, you know, Cy Abelman is in Olam Haba, which is not, you know, the Gentile idea of heaven and hell. It is a community. And it's like, that is such a lovely turn of phrase, but is it sort of, like, couching something? Like, does Nachner really, like, know what he's talking about? Like, we don't know. And uh, there's, like, two sides to that coin. And one of the sides is, like, it's, it's horrifying that there are no answers. But the other is, like, at least at least we're all in the same boat. I don't know. And, like, Jews mm. kind of, like, have fun with that. We are not promised a luxury first-class lounge where we can eat milk and cookies for all eternity. Yeah, he loved talking about milk and cookies during that whole, oh, <laughs> that whole spiel. And if I could speak on that. Um, what, on I, milk? I, yeah, you can yeah, speak, speak on Milky because I know he can't speak on, speak on cookies. You want your Milky Way Yeah, I'm so thirsty for some Milky Way. Uh, anyway, uh, if I could speak on some Nachner, um, I think like though he could just be a bullshit artist. A big part of like the message of this movie is you really just no one really knows, um, mm. and whether that's because of the you know, like, Book of Job-style interpretation, like, no person could know what's going on because God's, like, God's got it down pack. Or, um, if because there's not anything to know. Um, like, no one knows, certainly not Rabbi Nochner, so all he can do is kind of, like, interpret it, uh, in a way that benefits the community. Yeah, and that's one of my favorite, like, tiny moments is, like, when it's, like, clearly, like, his ego talking, when he's, like, Sussman doesn't know what to turn. Who does he turn to? And then it, like, cuts to him, like, pointing at himself and, like, yeah. shrugging and going, the Rabbi Nachner. <laughs> <laughs> With the Jimi um, Hendrix song, yeah. Yeah, Rabbi Nachner played by George Weiner. What a soundtrack, by the way, yeah. Oh, what a soundtrack. And the oh, original score by Carter Burwell. Great soundtrack. Burwell. George Weiner, who, like, his other most famous Hollywood role is he's Colonel Sanders in Spaceballs. What? The guy who says, like, President oh Scrooge. <laughs> oh, my God, you're right. I, I never wow. thought about that. Yeah. Oh. Spaceballs is, no, space, no, but, like, no joke, Spaceballs is actually such a ripoff of Star Wars. And I don't know how it got away with <laughs> No, I'm, there's, like, no fucking creativity behind it. Like, Pizza the Hut, Jabba the Hut. It's the same shit. Uh, oh, man. You guys know, um... In my life, I've had two new, like, celebrity sightings in Manhattan, and both of them were Richard Kind. Um, really? Yeah, That's no amazing. way. Yeah. Wait, Nate, I, th I thought you punched Rick Moranis. Oh, I did yeah, punch Rick Moranis. <laughs> I don't really care. In New York. As a, as a celeb you know he's You know he's still recovering from that bruise. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I hit him hard. No, but Nate, what's your address? Like, <laughs> say it. <laughs> Just say it, yeah. Yeah, let's hear it. Come on, for the fans. Say it. Give, give the say listeners it. an idea, yeah. you know. Hey, I mean, on a scale of 1 to 10, what's your social security number? Well, probably 10 you in. Near Lincoln Center, I'll give you that. Okay. And it was there. Very the cool. First, the first sighting was um, Sarah graduated from getting her master's in social work at Columbia and we were waiting outside the auditorium to enter her graduation ceremony, and Richard Kind's daughter was in the class, and I just saw, like, Richard Kind in, like, a tux, just, like, impatiently... You can see him, like, impatiently tapping his foot on the ground because the line oh was God. taking too long. Uh, the other was even better. This, the other was during uh, pan the pandemic, and it was, like, raining, and I was, like, hustling down Broadway, <laughs> and I was under an overpass, and I just, like, out of the corner of my eye, see, like, you know how, like, parents will, like, take a phone call on speaker, even though they're the only person taking the call, um, oh, yeah. and, like, hold it, like, a foot uh, out from their what chin? A, and, what a maneuver. <laughs> yeah, and I just pass, and I hear the voice going, yeah, you know, I'm here now, I need to get to L.A., but there aren't any flights. And, like, it was him. I swear to God, it was him. Um, he also has, like, a Mickey Mouse-level recognizable silhouette. 
Like, there's yes. no way you could mistake <laughs> Richard Kind for anyone else. <laughs> it's like the the beginning of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents. You're like, oh, yeah, that's Richard Kind. Exactly. <laughs> uh, just quickly, he was unshaven, which was, like, a little scary. Mm. But you, you could... <laughs> wow. First of all, I want to defend speakerphone. You put, you, put, you put speakerphone on, you can go about your day. You can do other tasks, you know? The other day, I, I shaved while on speakerphone. Wow. <laughs> I, dude, I totally agree. And speakerphone equals hands free. And when you have two hands free, you can do anything. And I have done <laughs> everything. Is that, Jeff, is that Jeffrey Tubin level everything? <laughs> I, you know, if I keep lawyers on retainers for things like this, and they've told me keep, keep, it, keep it locked up. So. <laughs> I, I will say, I think one of us should go to law school, and one of us should go to rabbinic school. It's a great idea. All right, we'll draw we, we need one we of these. We should start like a, like a Jewish switch. village people, you know? Like So like one of us is like a rabbi, one of us is a lawyer, one of us is a dentist. And one we of them's a deli. One yeah, one of like a deli. deli. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who manages the Jewish village people? Soros. Great question. Oh, it's great. Yeah, is an Irish guy? <laughs> yeah. Because normally managers are, you know, you know Jewish or played by Paul Giamatti, but... Uh, <laughs> or both. I don't. I don't think yeah, Paul Giamatti both. in uh, the NWA movie did anything positive for the way yeah. that Jews he's are stolen so many roles from well, Jewish like, actors. Like, is the scene where he reacts to the Ice Cube song supposed to be hilarious? I mean, I think what that happens, they just played the song, and that was just Paul Giamatti's take. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it wasn't scripted. It's just uh, should we? Should we circle Should we back circle to talking back? about the movie? Yeah. I'd circle yeah, back. <laughs> forgot about uh, that. Just, by way, circling back by way of something unimportant, did you guys notice uh, in watching Serious Man and Barton Fink this week, uh, the shared actor Michael Lerner, the guy who plays the best Barton Fink character, the biggest kike in town, is um, Solomon Schlutz, the uh, oh. uh, agent. No the, way. The, the who guy has who has a heart attack? <laughs> Yeah. I did not pick up on that. Isn't, isn't he also in Lebowski? Oh, is he? He's, he's the PI detective, right? Oh, you're right. Yeah. No, no. Oh, that's John Polito. Dude, who is, I don't uh, know. I honestly yeah. have right. no memory of who he played in Barton Fink. Oh no, he was the he was the, the producer guy, right? Jack Lipnick. Yeah, yeah, the producer guy. Jap Lip, Jack He got Lipnick. he got an Academy Award for that shit. Nomination. But yeah. What? No, no, no. He got fucking deserved. Oh, yeah, by the way. Yeah, he's Absolutely. in like fucking deserved. The, the great thing about Serious Man is I could watch that movie and not know anybody's actor's name. So all I see is Rabbi Knox Except and for Rabbi Marshak yeah. and Larry Gobnick. I see Tony Shalhoub. I'm like, damn, that's Tony Shalhoub. Yeah. That's Tony Shalhoub on I my television right now. I'm going to say for this podcast that's happening right now, I wouldn't know who Richard Kind is. And, and while, while we're on the subject. Tomorrow, probably, by this time tomorrow, I'll be right back to not recognizing Richard Kind. He plays Bing Bong in Inside Out. What is, yeah, I wouldn't have recognized him. That's that. an animated he's on movie. Big animated character. He's on he Big all... Mouth. He's How uh, old are you Andrew's watching Big Mouth? Huh? Who's Man, Andrew? Big, Big Mouth is tough to watch. Yeah, Who, I only watched the first about? season. You, yeah, you can't watch it after you're 18. You're basically true. Because it's child porn. Yeah. Well, in that case, Pretty you can't much. watch the Simpsons movie after age 18. Because there is Bart. There's Bartcock. Well, yeah, but it's not I mean, Bart Cock talking about how much he jerks off to his pillow. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like just a cock isn't childborn. I mean, never mind my Nirvana isn't childborn. By the way, um, I don't know if you guys have uh, uh, met yet with the... Uh, if you've met yet with the new rabbi, Rabbi Bart Cock. Yeah. There's a great joke from, like, early 90s Simpsons where, like, Bart, like... You know, whatever the plot of the episode is, it's like Bart can't hang out with his friends because he is in trouble. And Milhouse comes by and is <laughs> hey, like, classic. hey, Bart, we're going to go see an R-rated movie. It's called Barton Fink. And the kids start <laughs> chanting, Barton Fink, Barton Fink. <laughs> what episode is that in? That's fucking hilarious. I don't That's remember good. that episode. Dude, I would be so pissed if that was my first R-rated movie and I was exactly. like hyped yeah. for it. And then I just have to watch just John Turturro just existential crisis. talk. That was so awful. Dog. I did not get to Barton Fink. Did you watch The Bro Who Wasn't Neat? No, I had a lot of midterms this week. Oh, but I fair. watched A Serious Man. <laughs> Alright, The Man Who Wasn't There, kind of boring. I loved the last scene. I like the scene where ScarJo tries to give him a handy. Because yeah. Billy Bob is really good at the fi- like just acting like the pure 
terrified discomfort of like a middle-aged man in that situation yeah dude she was so going good. for roadhead she wasn't giving it a handy she was going you're for right. roadhead you're right i'm boulderizing aren't i yeah um how, how are the coen brothers not canceled for writing into a script as like a six year old girl. year old actress yeah. 17 year old 17 year old actress yeah she was 17 yeah. right scarlett johansson was 17 at the time yeah did she actually have to touch Billy Bob on his private parts? I, no, I doubt movie, that there was any actual contact. It's a movie. Do you know you the don't have to say it's a movie, bro. You know they actually... Junior, it's real people, dude. It's a television program. A Game, movie. Do you know what acting is? <laughs> they do like, imagine you pretend to do something, but you're not actually doing it. It's called lying. That's what... Acting <laughs> is just lying, but they get paid for it. They spit the food... Why... Eating... Every time they're eating food, they spit the food out, Gabe. Do they actually? Yeah. Calories. Why do yeah, you think that they were so angry at actors in the, the 50s? Same bucket every it movie. wasn't because they were communists. It's because they're all liars. That's why Le Leo like shouldn't have won an Oscar for The Revenant. Because the Oscar he didn't fuck the bear. He yeah. didn't. He fuck wasn't the bear. an actual. Wait, did that happen in the, in the film? <laughs> yeah, he, he, he fucks the bear. bear. He fucks that's the, bear. That's the, the bear. main premise of the movie. The that's the whole movie. If we're being and he got an Oscar for it. He did. It's bear fucking. The premise was that. He I cut never it open like in Star Wars no, and then crawled. He got a in. horse open. He got a horse open and he fucked the bear. Why would he Jesus. fuck a bear? What? I've, I've never seen the Revenant. <laughs> Isn't this like a three hour movie? Revenant. <laughs> wait, Listen, wait, Jonah, were you, were, you, were, you, were, you, were you taking a piss, mate? <laughs> I'm, completely, no, I, I'm completely serious, but I've never seen the Revenant. To be, Wait, so to there's be dead precise, ass is a the, three hour movie where the bear Leo. Fucks has him. anyone on this podcast <laughs> what? The Hold no. on. Wait, wait, wait. It goes Why both does ways. Why fuck a bear? No, he, the, he's, he's. There's I thought he fights the bear. He's, Tom Hardy leaves him out in the cold as he has left so many of us. His broken body is found by a bear which fucks him. It and fucks the, him? Like, that seems highly implausible. I agree. How would the bear possibly know human anatomy well enough to know how to fuck a man? Humans are just larger rabbits. Yeah, bear anatomy. Bears never. Humans are not, dude. I cannot jump nearly as high as a fucking rabbit. What are you talking about? How high do you think a rabbit can jump? How high do you think a rabbit can jump? to its body, maybe. I'd like to. I'd like to circle back to a serious fan thing really quick. I've been meaning to talk about this. Does does anyone at all think that this is a horror movie? I did not get that whatsoever. Yeah, I wanted to hear more about Noah's take. Yeah, this is Noah's pet theory comes from. It, it was not a pet theory. It's a it's a man theory, and it comes from me. A horror movie is just an exercise in style. So we open with a spooky scene, which seems to foretell some sort of curse. Right? We start with this whole like kind of curse esque thing going on. Okay, and then throughout the movie is a bunch of regular shit going on. Right? Like a divorce and a bar mitzvah, while both daunting are all told fairly run-of-the-mill things and a lot of it's to do with the sound and i can't tell you about specific sounds because i would just be on the podcast being like woo, woo, right that wouldn't do it um we're building sounds at certain camera angles there's a lot of tension even though all that's happening is he's getting a divorce and his kid is having a bar mitzvah okay and then another thing so uh with uncle arthur um for the first like maybe half an hour of the film hear a lot about uncle arthur you never see him right it takes a long time before they show us uncle arthur so he's like this whole like mysterious thing that's always in the bathroom okay and then, draining his cyst draining his cyst oh right and then when he and um when larry and uncle arthur move into the jolly roger uh the motel i, I remember this quite vividly right it's dark it's dark and then suddenly, fridge door opens up, right? So there's just like a little bit of light coming from the side. And it's like this super like would be creepy shot if it weren't, you know, this comical thing going on, right? Um, or another, you know, kind of spooky scene. Or it's not spooky, but it could be, right? So it's the scene where he climbs up to the roof. And they've got like really hardcore, non-diegetic horror music going like, wah, 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 right? Like that. And then you see his like face come up over the roof line, Okay. If this were at night, and this were in the context of an actual horror movie, he'd be dead. Something would come up behind him and fall or something, right? 
And then there's also the creepy neighbors who never actually do anything other than disrespect the property line. But they're just there and they're creepy and they're hunting me and they have like a dead deer on the top of the car at one point, if I recall correctly. Mm. And so in that way, this whole thing, to me, is a riff on horror movies. They're saying, look, we could just make shit kind of scary, even though it's just this kid smoking weed before his bar mitzvah and Larry trying to get a get. That's the theory. Well, two things, really. Um, one, like, it never seems like the purpose of it is to elicit fear. It just seems like it's to elicit, like, a surreal, like, anxiety, you know? Unease. It never seems, it never seems, yeah, unease, exactly. That's the perfect word for it. Um, the other thing is there's never a release. There's never, like, in a horror movie, uh, of course, like, um... Not to like spoil any horror movies, but there's like a buildup, there's the setting, there's the scariness, and then there are those moments of like, you know, gut wrenching jump scares or whatever the movie, uh, whatever the movie makers decide to put in there to make the audience scared. There's that moment. It's of It's like at the end of The Shining if they just like went home. Exactly, yeah. It's like if the hotel was freaky and then they're like, ah, you know, we, we successfully, you know, babysat this hotel. It was kind of weird, but whatever. Um, but that's there, not what happened no... in this movie. Well, no, it that's kinda... a movie about how you shouldn't have kids if you want to get work done. It's, 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 it's real true. It's about, it's about yeah. how Jack Nicholson just loves to murder people. <laughs> in real life. Ms. Kubrick's <laughs> warning about Jack Nicholson. <laughs> I remember fondly uh, the first time I watched this movie with any of you. We get to Danny's sit-down with Marshak, and Noah very honorably bolted upright and was like, it's the Dibbuk. And I was like, <laughs> no, you fucking idiot. It's a completely different actor. But, you know, I... <laughs> they had built the tension to make you believe that the thing from the beginning was going to come back in the end. It's the, the same beard. It's the same beard. It's the same two-pronged beard. We we had seen him halfway through the movie, though. We see him yeah. through the door. I this the whole horror take and the idea that <laughs> it's the divot comeback because they had been playing that up the whole time. It was a five-minute skit in the beginning of the movie, which I don't know about other people, but I forgot about it five minutes after it happened because now that's because you have a tiny peanut brain. Just because things have tension doesn't make them horror. Okay, my dick gets hard. There's tension. It is not a horrible thing. Um, first of all, that was not a horror movie soundtrack. I agree completely with Ian. It was an anxious soundtrack. It just built up anxiety, which I think is emblematic of the Jewish American experience at times and the Jewish hyphenated anything experience at times. You know, the saying, always keep a backpack. Um, just because you can reshoot anything, I'm not on you. I'm not on you. Um, just because you can <laughs> reshoot anything and put like the horror thing in it, like when they reshoot, recut the trailers, it's like, oh, um, here's a rom com. But if it was a horror film, doesn't mean the original rom com, which undoubtedly had some tension in it, was a horror film. You know, that is the most shallow minded take. That is, you know, that is the most simple take. You know, that is, no that is the most fucking disgusting, baseless take I have ever heard in my entire life. And I sat through two elections with Trump, okay? And it's just, oh, it's honestly a fucking offensive that you would come here and tell me a movie about Jewish people is a horror film. A horror film? Do you know what they did to us? Yeah. Can I respond? Like, respond, fine, respond, respond. Okay. Um, so the one thing that you're missing is actually it's a very good take. <laughs> is that it? <laughs> yeah. If that's the whole of your response, I respect it. I respect the shit out of that. I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot a little. Um totally out of left field, but alright. My main reason for thinking that a serious man is the book of Job is because Man Who Wasn't There is a clear adaptation of Albert Camus' book, The Stranger. Mm -hmm. mm. For those of you that have read The Stranger, you know that it's about a man realizing the absurdity of life and then killing for basically no reason and then getting the electric chair at the end of it. The same thing happens in Man Who Wasn't There and in the same kind of manner that um, a serious man has it. It's 
No, no. no. He's a good-looking guy. He was a good-looking good guy. guy. Really that good picture looking. of him in the in the pea coat with the cigarette. <laughs> Unlike Sartre, yeah. he was fucking ugly as shit. Sartre was French. <laughs> yeah. Jean Paul was also recent enough to take pictures of. Yeah, he was. He died in like the sixties. Jean Paul Sartre is is Jean Paul Sartre is equally <laughs> as ugly as Tom York. <laughs> I think Tom York's kind of cute. The interesting thing about these <laughs> philosophers you can be cute. is they were all awful. Whoa, to this dude looks like. Dog shit. Nah, dude. Sartre wasn't awful to women. Simone de Beauvoir was a philosopher in her own right and was really awesome. And ugly. Who was the guy this who guy was just so bad? Such an asshole. Wait, who'd you say this guy looks like? Tom oh, York? Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer yeah. hated yes. women. Yes, he hated. He a lot pushed of a woman down the stairs, <laughs> and he had I'm to not... pay her money for the rest of his life. He, he hated the oh, Jonah. What? Jonah. He didn't look like. He doesn't look like Tom York. Tom York just also has that kind of like. A I'm not saying he looks lazy, like it. I'm, I'm saying they're both ug ugly in the same way, but, but equally Tom brilliant. It's cute. He looks like an injured mouse. He looks like Babu Frick. <laughs> As we wrap up our sort of trying to get at like what a serious man is trying to accomplish, I think we should devote a little more time to discussing some someone who hangs over this whole conversation but we re really only oh, mentioned yes. in passing which is oh, the yes. most iconic character of the movie bring it uh in. the villain one could say of a serious Do man it. played masterfully by great jewish character actor fred malamed i'm talking about cy abelman cy abelman cy abelman is there a through line to like sort of this character Silman, the imperious faux polite guy who fucks your wife uh is that like an essential jewish fear like are we all worried that our like uh self-conscious nebishiness allows Cy Abelman's to fuck our wives like, why is he I, I don't, the antagonist? I, I think I, he is kind of like the the nice guy that you can't say anything bad about, but is just constantly, like, playing into Larry's downfall. Like, not only is he writing letters to the mm. uh, to the tenure board, like, bad-mouthing Larry, um, he's also, you know, like, presumably fucking his wife. Um, or at the very least, forcing her to get a get so that like which is which seems like an unnecessarily drawn out process. A what? Uh, <laughs> a get. Um, which you know for for our non-Jewish listeners back home is a, a Jewish ritualistic divorce. Uh, it, it seems like he's constantly playing into all, if not most, of Larry's problems, and at the same time, he also seems to be this respected member of the community. That if Larry were to go around and start badmouthing, people would be like, what the fuck? Why are you talking about Larry like that? So in a way, it kind of like plays into the helplessness that Larry must feel throughout the movie. Larry can't like really do anything about Psy. Also, Psy, I don't know how much taller than he is than Larry, but in every scene that they're in together where they're standing near each other, he's just such a such a imposing guy. Like that wine scene where he comes over with a bottle of wine... He seems like two feet taller than Larry, even though it might be this like. This is not Mogan David, Larry. This is not it's Mad Dog yesterday. 2020, Larry. This is a wine. <laughs> a Bordeaux. I yeah, mean, that's... you need only look at like one of the most obvious, I feel like, namings of a character ever to understand what Psy represents. His name is literally Able Man. Hmm. So you smart, know, so wise. My Can like, you elaborate on that? His name is Able Man. He's a man who's able. You know, it's like it's it's he. What frustrates Larry is that he feels like he's powerless. And oh, here's yeah, Sai, yeah. whose name is literally Able Man. He's a man who's able to do things that Larry isn't. You know, You're like right. he absolutely. seriously fucked Larry's wife. We never actually see Larry fuck at all in the movie. He has one fantasy, one dream sequence where he fucks Mrs. Samsky and she keeps her bra on and blows smoke in his face. You know, like he's a, he's uh, been sort of, I don't know, he, he, he's, he's not able to uh, he do the things that he wants to do. 
Exactly. Yo, can I, can I hop in on this one? Yeah, go ahead. Do you think that's related to Cain and Abel at all? Oh, interesting. Good question. I can't answer it. <laughs> Except um, the mystery. I think <laughs> I, I agree with what Ben's saying. It feels like Larry feels super impotent. Because, well, he is, frankly, quite impotent, generally. Um, and then Psy. I don't think Psy is, like, faux polite. I think Psy is both very polite and just very tone deaf. Like, he's like, I want to be friends with you, Larry, because you're going through a divorce. Don't mind that it's me who's doing it. Um, he just does everything right. And then I think in the dream sequence, where Psy Abelman beats him up and is like, I seriously fucked your wife, dog. Um... That's kind of what he wishes would happen because um, in real life, in the not dream sequence, Psy is doing everything right and there's nothing Larry can do about it. And if Psy would just be angry at him or like beat him up or smash his face in a chalkboard or whatever, <clears throat> then suddenly um, Larry would have a defense, right? He would have his weakness as his defense which is a legit thing. But in this instant, right, because he never does that because Cy Abelman never seems to slip up because he always seems to be this perfect, respected, congenial guy. Serious man. Exactly. Serious. Well, yeah, exactly. There's just, there's nothing for Larry to, there's, if it's only his fault, right? It's not Cy's fault that he's an able man. It's Larry's fault that he's an impotent pussy. Um, and he can't hide behind his weakness. He, you know, there's nothing wrong with Psy, you know, all this. And I, I like the able man thing. And that's what I think the dream sequence is about. I think it's him wishing that Psy had one weakness. And the only weakness that he can think of is Psy taking advantage of his weakness. Because then he would finally have something, which is very sad. Mm. When you think mm. about it. Jonah, did you want to chime uh, in? Yeah. So my interpretation of Psy Abelman is that he is Satan. He is he is makes a bet with God that he can ruin Job Larry's life by fucking his wife. Um, and I, I think he's the the stand-in for Satan in the story. I mean, he appears yeah, to Larry in a dream, which I, I don't think mere mortals have the power to do. I mean, obviously, you can have dreams about people, but I think within the context of a serious man, um, it's Sai kind of you know inhabiting Larry's dreams. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta lean toward Jonah on this one, cause you know, it's gotta be on that grand cosmic scale, cause all the humans yeah. die. <laughs> that, I mean, yeah, it just—it's literally, you know, it's, it's a movie. It's apocalyptic, man. I like Nate. I I do agree with your take. I just also think it's a Book of Job allegory. Oh, absolutely. You know? yeah. Like, I don't think they takes contradict each other. I think God could easily have punished Job by destroying the world. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, just really giving Job the business through and through. But, you know, perhaps a postmodern take on Job is Job isn't a person at all. You know, Job is life itself. And, you know, you can wipe out the whole world. You can wipe out all the, the plants, animals, and humans we have now. But there'll still be some carbon-based, you know, whatever, scrounging around the bottom of the earth after after all this. Hope so. But when you go that on that big of a scale, does it mean anything anymore? I don't think so, but you know, it's okay. That's life. Well, it's like <laughs> <laughs> That's what all the people say. Is that the song from Joker? Yeah. I really Joker. Like a serious man. Hello. Same movie. I, my problem with Cy Abelman and Larry is like leaving aside all the interpretation. If Larry had got the fucking nuts to just sock him in the jaw one time, it would be a completely different movie. That's true. It would be yeah. just like I don't know that it was, would. That's why it makes me so mad about Sai. It's like, yo, just fucking do something, bro. But the the whole <laughs> point of his character, I don't think he ever would do that. He always has to like feel victimized. That's why we hear I've never done anything wrong. Yeah, yeah, repeats yeah. Repeats it throughout but, the entire movie. But then movie. When, you, when you see him, obviously the irony then is when you see him talking to Arthur and he's like, you gotta pull yourself up. Exactly. You do for yourself. Like I guess it's the clear irony. It's like, yeah, Larry, this guy's stupid your wife, dude. Like Gabe, that like was actually something I really wanted to um, Leonardo DiCaprio. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Gabe, actually, that was something I, re I really did want to um, touch on. So thank you for bringing that up. Uh, I, I think it is important to think about how, like, though we see Psy as kind of like the main instigator of the film, and Larry is like the main victim, at the end of the day, that final scene before the bar mitzvah is Arthur revealing that he sees Larry as kind of like the guy who has it all. Yeah. And it's Arthur who feels like victimized. And Larry kind of has to become the role model for a second. And that kind of puts it a lot into perspective as like less of a, I mean, though I do agree with like Jonah and everyone that this is definitely like a biblical allegory. Um, it kind of brings almost like a old fashioned, like the moral of the story is to this movie. Like, you know, someone always has it a little worse than you. And maybe that can get tied into like the community of Judaism, or maybe that can get tied into the Coen brothers just wanting to throw a little introspective moment into their film. I don't know if anyone's got a thought on that. Well, just real quick, since you brought up the bar mitzvah, that was one of the more poignant parts of the movie and one of the parts that actually made me a little bit happy and less anxious. And upon the third time watching the film, I don't know, there, there was something there where finally his Jewish life and his traditions have brought him a moment of closure and happiness and satisfaction with the way that life is when Danny is just so fucking high but he reads the Torah um, and he does his bar mitzvah. And in a way, you know, parallel to me and Noah's bar mitzvah where a lot of people did not want to be in that room when we were talking. Um, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's a moment of great nachas. Um, you know, you become a Jew, you become part of the community. Um, and it's just something that no matter where you are, you know, in your, in your life, no matter what's going on, it puts a smile on your face. And so it, to me, that was kind of like the Cohen's like little for all the stuff that they may or may not be saying about Judaism and the Jewish um, experience in America, you do have these moments of just profound satisfaction um, no matter what else is going on around you. So I actually enjoyed that. But then he gets cancer and a tornado yeah. comes. I so agree with that, Gabe. And I think it's that's, you know, a moment where you really feel like because the a serious man is a sort of autobiographical film wherein Joel and Ethan are Danny. I mean, they were teenage boys in a very Jewish suburb of Minnesota in the late, they were born in the mid fifties. They were teenagers in the late sixties. Um, and, uh, I think they definitely, you know, as they do and you know, the, the sort of comfortably Jewish aspects they give to so many movies, you know, obviously like the, the great, like, like Jewish, like fountain of memes is, you know, John Goodman and the big Lebowski. And like, they, it's not like they, they, they certainly don't, uh, you know, condemn Judaism. They they love it and, and grasp it wholeheartedly. And um, with, you know, like, making a lot of movies about how, like, complex and screwed up it is. Um, something I loved uh, in on that vein was, um, as I said, I was leaving, reading the screenplay yesterday, and, you know, um, immediately after, like, you see, like, Danny, like, still stoned, like, accepting the Kiddush Cup from Nachner, there's, like, ten seconds of... Um, the congregation singing Adon Alam, Adon Alam, Asher Malach, Asher Malach. In the screenplay, that just says, the congregation starts up Adon Alam. Like, no more <laughs> explanation necessary. This is a screenplay that is an inside joke among Jews. But also for everyone to enjoy. And so, like, it is pretty incredible how it pulls off that uh, warm fuzziness. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of this movie... Disorders. I think a lot of this movie was just for us. Like, yeah, I mean, I most not, of your non—they're—they're they're not gonna like it. I tried no, to watch this. I tried to watch this a couple weeks ago uh, with my Shiksa girlfriend, and we—we uh, we got you know about halfway through, and I think she was enjoying it. You know, she likes the Coen Brothers. She was like, you know, laughing at the parts you're supposed to laugh at. You know, she seemed like she was into it, but I, I think yeah, she like kind of didn't get it on like the spiritual level, you know. Yeah, to yeah. me, this movie was most of all, ignoring all meaning, because I don't think it really, I think it's just a fun movie, but, you know, whatever. I think <laughs> this was just a gift from the Coen brothers to us, saying, here, enjoy, Jews. 
have at it. That's what yeah. I, I don't know. Amen. It's just such a, a different level of connection, like, I, and it feels like it feels like an asshole. I feel like an asshole, like when you're talking to like someone who's not Jewish, you're like, oh, you see a serious man, they're like, yeah, you're like, oh, it was, it was decent. And you're like, oh, you wouldn't really get it, All right? You feel like an <laughs> asshole, but like, the part where he's listening to the record, he's like, I don't know, um, like, if you're if you're a Jewish person that's been bar bat mitzvah, like, I, I don't know how you that, can't yeah, have just a, instant flashbacks. That was a screenshot of my life. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, just like the old man baritone. Yeah, I, I, you know, I feel that that feeling, the sort of, you know, we're in on something. I feel that with this, and I feel it with Wet Hot American Summer. Obviously yeah. in very different yeah. uh, attitudes. Well, I think that's a nice note for us all to gather on. As we head yeah. out, I'm just I'm just going to read one more, uh, my single favorite uh, line in the movie, which is uh, when Larry is uh, pleading his case. Uh, to the secretary to enter Marshak's office. He says, try to do right, be a member of the community, raise the raise the Danny, Sarah. They both go to school, Hebrew school. A good breakfast. That's the line. <laughs> a good breakfast. A good breakfast. A good there's breakfast. Just, there's just so much pain in that. Yeah. All right. Well, All right. Love thanks you so much for having us on. Yeah. Love you guys. Wonderful.